Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, into LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. And I big people. I I don't think so. I think people are going to skip out. It's going to be a problem. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, remember? Tan Staffel. <laughs> That's right. All right. So here's the other piece I wrote that really puts this in perspective. Really, you know, you deal with a lot of B and C apartments. So I call it the Casey, housing. Before you, further, I, before you go further, are you going to be talking about the, what your thoughts about the $600 unemployment check? Yeah, I, I hadn't. You know, it's again, it's one of those key bridges. You know, when you've still got the, the we'll get another number on the, the unemployment, but we're still looking, you know, the real unemployment number is over 18%. That's the U6. So when you when you have essentially one in five Americans out of work, that's double what we went through during the, the 2009 financial crisis. Unless you want to have mass civil, un <laughs> you know, you're going to have to intervene and do some of this stuff. So, you know, it, the numbers tally up to like another five or 600 billion in a total $1 trillion package. I don't see where Congress can't afford to act. You know, we, I don't know how we ever pay all this back and have the dollar worth a damn thing in two or three years. But if we don't do it, get ready for the world to implode here. You can't just have one in five Americans evicted. Um, and, and this is what this piece shows you right here. If you add up the numbers, we have 23% of all American households, that's renters and mortgage holders, that are in some sort of either rent or mortgage forbearance right now. So on the, on the lower right over there, 4.2 million uh, homeowners are in forbearance. 4.3 million are already delinquent in their mortgage, waiting for a forbearance approval. And you've got 20 million or one in five of the 110 million apartment renters are in rent forbearance. These are staggering numbers. We've got 140, 150 million households in this country. And you've got something in the range of almost 30 million uh, one in five that can't pay their rent or mortgage. These are these are staggering numbers. You've got to provide some levels for this is this is on the on the scale of the Great Depression. We've never seen these type of numbers. So this is so when we get the numbers, you know, like oh, penny home sales are a new record and home sales are up this much. This is all the people that are fleeing New York. The home sales are up strongest in the West, in the Northeast, where they're getting the hell out of San Francisco, LA, New York, <laughs> Chicago, and they're going to the suburbs, they're going to Milwaukee, they're going to Connecticut, they're going to the Hamptons, they're going to the Carolinas, they're going to Florida, they're going to Texas, uh, they're going to Arizona, and they're, and they're buying a house, they're getting out. Uh, it's, it's the people that are just saying, I'm getting out of these dense areas where I still have a job and I can work with Zoom and I'm an attorney or some sort of white collar worker, and, that, and they're buying homes. And with the interest rates so low, it, you know, you're at a friend that just told me the other day, they got a 2.58% uh, 30-year mortgage. That's just mind-boggling. My first mortgage was over 10%, 1985. <laughs> My dad said, grab it. They'll never be below 10. <laughs> 
So, so this really puts these numbers in perspective for you. Um, here's the hotel. I don't know if you guys do much hotel, um, but it's really distressed. Here's the, here's the quote I'll share with you from Real Capitalytics on the 10 hotel sales in May. Jim Costello said, you know, we, we've never seen this level of illiquidity in the hotel market. It's essentially a frozen marketplace. How we figure out what to do with hotel is far worse than the housing crisis. It's far worse than trying to restart CMBS. The numbers are just mind boggling on the hotel. And on this next one is the second part of that article I wrote. The, I talked with a lot of the hotel CEOs from Marriott and Hilton, and they said, look at, you know, we're gonna build smaller, less dense hotels. We're gonna build exterior entry. Extended stay hotels are doing the best of anybody because they've got exterior entries and they're usually near grocery stores. So you're not dependent on restaurants. Everything's gonna be contactless. I recently stayed in a hotel uh, last week for my first time in months and uh, all the check-in was on my phone there was no one at the front entry i went up the elevator i got to my room there was a seal around the door i had to break i went into the room there was a big sealed bag on the bed the bed wasn't made the linens weren't out i had to break the seal in the bag make my own bed put all my own linens out it is a different world if you have not traveled or gone to an office but here's the bigger one in the lower left so all these hotels are being told they can only operate at 50% occupancy. It doesn't work. They're not economically feasible. And what these occupancy restrictions essentially represent is a form of eminent domain. And so you see how I spell eminent there with all A's? That's how you spell it in Alabama. You can only use one vowel in Alabama, A. Um, I do know how to spell eminent domain. But anyway, they're a form of, you know, of eminent domain, a compensation or taking without compensation. I'm working with attorneys right now with major hotel chains and um, restaurant chains where we are going to probably test case in two large cities an inclusionary, uh, in inclusionary uh, kind of zoning taking of this eminent domain uh, to try to, to do away with these occupancy restrictions. This is the government telling you that you can now only use half your property. It's just like if they said, we want to take half of your front yard to widen the road and we're not going to give you any money. That's illegal. It's unconstitutional. Just the same is true on whether they tell you that you can't use half your restaurant or half your hotel. So this is how I think it plays out. And these court cases will come this fall that will be staggering and, and how local governments deal with court rulings against them on these occupancy restrictions. It's going to be a watershed event to watch and hotel and restaurants will be first. Retail, it's all going to change on the lower right. Um, I'll share with you, I know we're tight on time. Weight Watchers really told me some interesting things about experiential retail. Weight Watchers going into COVID had 75% of their clients have a face-to-face -face interaction in a shopping center or an office building. 60 days into COVID, that was flipped completely and it was 75% virtual. They saw record subscriber growth and record customer satisfaction. And their CEO said on their Q1 call, maybe we don't need very much real estate anymore. Now extrapolate that to say gyms and everything experiential. Um, my wife even does Zoom Zumba now. She pays the same fee. Her Zoom instructor doesn't has given up her month-to-month -month lease in a shopping center, and they just do it online Zoom. So um, I think we haven't begun to understand the tentacles of Zoom. It's not just work remote. It's experiential retail remote, um, everything from fitness and Weight Watchers, you name it. The other one I want to show you that's pretty new. I just wrote this this week. The Americans with Disabilities Act turned 30. And a lot of us forget how impactful that was on commercial real estate. I was a young appraiser um, working for Wells Fargo, and I had to explain the ADA to 
the loan committee and <laughs> the credit committee. And something just happened in Florida at the end of 2017. A case was brought by a blind, a blind man against Winn-Dixie. And he stated that there he had this um, screen reading uh, software that wouldn't interface with the Winn-Dixie software to do online grocery ordering. And they were the only grocer within 10 miles. So he sued and the federal court applied the Americans with Disabilities Act to online e-commerce websites. Think of that now. Think about how you think Zoom or um, Amazon or Walmart have thought through whether their online grocery ordering is compliant with ADA and hearing impaired or blind or autistic or anything like that? And the answer is no. So just when we thought we knew everything and could forget ADA, it's now being extended by the courts to online e-commerce. And uh, IRAM, the Institute of Real Estate Management, did a good job. They covered this case and I put the links there, but I found that very fascinating as well in retail. The other one in retail is from the Tax Foundation. If you if you don't look at this, it's a great site that visualizes uh, all kinds of data relative to tax. It looked at which states are most dependent upon sales taxes. So the dark green are the most dependent. Louisiana, Nevada, and Tennessee are the most with over 40% of their total state revenue coming from sales taxes. So when you have occupancy orders, that shut down retail and restaurants and hotels. Think of what's happened to the revenue base in these states. So all kinds of tentacles here that we haven't thought through and the local elected leaders haven't thought through that's gonna play out very interesting over the next six to 12 months. Logistics, I'll do a little bit on industrial, just like after the 2009 financial crisis, we had CMBS 2.0 to fix what was broken in CRE finance. I think we're gonna have logistics 2.0. On the left is a paper I published in the first quarter of 2019 called Logistics Infrastructure, and it really described how the evolution of our economy from a shop and take home to an order online and deliver to me was affecting everything. And I looked at ports and rail and trucking and why Amazon goes where it goes and Walmart. And um, to show you how Logistics 2.0 is already happening, Port Laredo in February, many of you might say I didn't, I didn't know Port San Antonio had a port. I didn't know Port Laredo had a port. It surpassed LA and Long Beach as the busiest container port in North America. And that was before the full impact of COVID. It's only going to get worse as we see more onshoring from China manufacturing to North America. More of it's going to go into Mexico than the U.S. because they have a less onerous approval process with the EPA and local government to permit a factory. So just like the auto industry, we're going to see all the component manufacturing done in Mexico. It migrate up into the southern U.S., in the southern states, Texas, all the way over to the southeast. And Port Moreto, we're going to see more north-south movement of logistics and supply chain and less west coast to east from L.A. to Chicago. Um, to show you also how much is going to change in industrial is if you look at how little um, the supply chain is automated, even warehouses are less than 50% automated, fulfillment is low, everything. We're, we're just under 50% of all of our warehousing and our fulfillment and returns are automated. That's all going to have to change. So that's coming. The other one is, I mentioned to you, the TSA passenger count is an important transportation metric. Look at the rail time indicators. Here's the latest numbers for June from um, reported out in July here by the American Association of Railroads. It's very encouraging. We're seeing rail traffic rebound. And in fact, in June, the total car loads um, in June averaged the most since March. And if you look at the intermodal in particular, 
it was um, it was the largest going back to November of last year. So this is very encouraging as things start to come into our ports, our supply chain starts to move again. All of these things are important indicators to see how the economy is recovering. I'm almost there. So the other thing I would tell you on logistics is if you guys haven't dealt with ESG and ESG scores, we saw the news today on the proxy advisors. A lot of these proxy advisors were determining your E score, your ESG score, and they think that logistics and warehousing is terrible and it's carbon burning. This is the FedEx's latest 2020 global citizenship report. And look at these E and S numbers I've highlighted in yellow. In FedEx, they had 96% growth in the last decade, and they cut overall CO2 emissions by 40%. Mind-boggling that they've grown that much. You'd never see this in an ESG report. And in their S, look at the diversity. They have 13 directors, four are women, um, three are ethnically diverse. In the U.S., um, uh, FedEx uh, women represent 23% of FedEx management globally, and minorities comprise 37% here in the U.S., you don't hear these numbers. You don't see these numbers. ESG did not die with COVID. It's going to come roaring back with more fierce ferocity. And the S is going to be as important as the E. But I just wanted to highlight this because we're going to be um, clubbed to death with ESG going forward. And the news today on proxy advisors shows us, um, you know, if you try to figure out who determines your ESG score and how abstract it is, um, it, it really is quite frightening. All right, I'm going to close on this stuff, what I call the big market distortion. It's the Fed. So in June, the second quarter, we set records going back to the 1980s. You wouldn't know that we had COVID. And the reason is the Fed's buying everything. So the Fed has been buying the bond debt in 750 companies like Apple and Walmart and Berkshire Hathaway. Um, anything that can't get a price discovery, the Fed's intervening. We really don't have market prices. We don't have market transparency. And what scares the bejesus out of me is the Fed's balance sheet. In the 2009 financial crisis, we ballooned the Fed's balance sheet to 4.3 trillion. We finally got it back below 4 trillion going into this year. And in about 60 days, the Fed had ballooned it to over 7 trillion. It'll be over 10 trillion by September, October. That's almost a half a year of GDP. And look at its, its balance sheet in terms of securities. It now has over 6 trillion dollars in securities on its balance sheet. The Fed is the market. The Fed's causing this distortion in the stock market, both with interest rates and what it's purchasing. It sets the prices. If it sees the 10-year treasury too high, it gets back down below 60 basis points. The Fed is distorting the market, and we need to understand that at some point that stops. Here's what concerns me when you look at what the Fed is investing in and what they're not. So this is, again, from the Tax Foundation. It shows this fiscal health of states looking as a proxy measure their amount of unemployment insurance. So the blue bars, the longer the blue bar represents how many years or months of unemployment insurance they have saved, that the vertical hashed line represents a year or more. Um, that's what's considered solvency by the Tax Foundation. And you can see the states um, down there, the horizontal dash bar. Florida is barely above it. But look at all the states. Look at Texas. Texas, you're down there with California and, uh, and Illinois in terms of not being solvent in terms of unemployment insurance. So if you guys have got to really shut down again, um, this could be a real fiscal issue. We are already seeing cities file Chapter 9 bankruptcy. We had the first one during COVID, which was in Alabama. We have 138 college towns that are on the verge of bankruptcy. They're weeks, um, maybe a couple of months away from filing bankruptcy. 
consider what the value of commercial real estate is in a city that's filed chapter nine bankruptcy. I've been through this rodeo twice, um, once with the Fed. Um, you don't know what your taxes are gonna be. You don't know what services you're gonna be. It's very hard to transact or get debt to come in and take out or, or invest. So we really need to start be thinking about this. The Fed and the CARES bill only provided financial support for those cities with 500,000 or more in population. That was 36 cities out of our over 360. 90% of our cities and municipalities are facing their airport bonds, their school bonds, their utility bonds, every infrastructure bond element and issuance um, basically being in default and them having to file bankruptcy here within the next three to six months. It's a very, very serious problem. Recently, the Councils of Real Estate published, I'm a, I'm a Council of Real Estate, their annual top 10 issues. Number four was public and private indebtedness. I wrote the piece on that. It's over there. I put the link down there. I encourage you to go to look at the usdebtclock.org. And if you don't want to sleep tonight, go spend about 30 minutes looking at our running total. It's a, a real-time running total of our debt. We have over 1.6 trillion, almost 1.7 in, in student loan debt. That's up from a trillion three a year ago. We have a, a trillion dollars in credit card debt. Our student loan debt is essentially 50% more than our credit card debt. The numbers are mind-boggling. Every man, woman, and child in the U.S. owes over 200,000 on our debt, and the Fed and Congress are doubling that right now. We really gotta understand what's happening here. So almost there, um, when we get there, we need to consider what there is gonna look like. So one of my favorite sites I go to is Visual Capitalist. They're another one of those great sites that visualizes data. So on the left there, they look at Zoom. A year ago, it was this eclectic tech company that not many of us knew about or were just discovering. Today, Zoom has a market capitalization that's bigger than the world's seven largest airlines, and it only has 1% the workforce. So if this work remote and all that stuff sticks, and we don't commute, we don't buy gas, we don't buy Starbucks, we don't go to hotels, we don't go to conventions, we do Zoom meetings, what does our economy look like? What kind of labor structure do we have? We need to be asking those questions now. We're probably gonna need a lot more fiscal intervention. In the middle there, think about our casual dining. So before COVID, Chick-fil-A was in the process of renovating or tearing down half of its freestanding restaurants and replacing them with a new model. They tore down the store in the middle of the site, they moved it to the back, they doubled or tripled their drive-through lanes. They developed a great app. Those stores that were open and completed going into COVID have seen same store sales grow 10 to 20%. Now think about where we are, and Chick-fil-A was doing that because of convenience, not because of COVID. And now it's accelerated because of COVID. What is a Taco Bell on a half acre with one drive-through lane that you can't fix What's it worth? Think of all of the model, how it's gonna change for casual dining. What is there? What is the suburbs? What are the inner cities gonna look like when we get there? I'll conclude with this. Recessions, are we in a recession, depression, or what kind of recession? So this is a piece on the history. Um, an interesting thing that happened in June. The National Bureau of Economic Research, um, they date when we go into recessions and recoveries. Um, they're given the authorization by Congress. For the first time ever, with only one quarter of data, GDP data, they declared we were in a recession. The protocol has been to wait until we see two consecutive quarters of negative GDP to declare a recession. And for the first time ever, NBR called it with only one quarter data. That ought to scare the hell out of us. Um, and you see the longest one was our 2008, January 8 to June 2009, 18 months. I think this one's gonna be longer and much more severe. 
I'm in the camp that we're in a W-shaped recession. That's been my call since March. I've never wavered. I never was a believer we'd see a Nike swoosh or a V-shaped recovery. You don't go to 20% unemployment in a global shutdown and just bounce back. And so I think what we're seeing now are the early signs of the W in the recession, the rising um, jobless claims, the beginning of the big bankruptcies, uh, the end of the CARES bill, any of this support. So I'm in the camp, it's a W. And just to show you, I sometimes get it right. This was my January economic view at the beginning of the year. I called it picture influences. The things I thought would most influence our economy this year were going to be up there in the left in red with the arrows, LIBOR transition. We've all forgot that happens the end of next year. <laughs> um, I thought Boeing with the 737 MAX was going to be a big deal. The, Boeing is still our largest exporter. And then ESG, what was happening with ESG. But look down here in the lower left. I also said that sometimes there's these things called black swan events. And this was right around the time that Trump was debating what to do with China and whether to stop travel. And so believe it or not, in January, the, the, about the third or fourth week of January, I had the coronavirus as a black swan event to monitor. <laughs> um, so sometimes I get it right. And so I'm at the end, believe it or not, James. And um, so I have a favorite quote from Winston Churchill. And it's why it explains why I focus so much on corporate earnings and I believe no government data. Late in Winston Churchill's career, he um, admitted that he had been lied to by lots of people. And so he had concluded this, that he no longer listens to what people say. He just watches what they do because behavior never lies. Look at behavior in trying to forecast the economy and commercial real estate. Look at the behavior in things like what the Fed's doing on its balance sheet and intervention. Look at what's happening in terms of forbearance programs. Look at what companies are telling us, even though 80% are giving us no forward guidance on financial ratios. Oh my God, they're telling us a lot about what they're doing in terms of cutting CapEx spending, in terms of um, war notices for future layoffs. They're telling us a lot. Prologis just recently this week gave us their earnings on industrial and warehouse. And it was phenomenal. So if you're, you know, want to be bullish even more on industrial, look at that. Look at Freddie Mac's earnings that will be coming up. Look at the airlines that all reported today. We had Alaska Air, United, American, uh, Southwest. It was really a dire story. So this is a picture I found on a birthday card from one of my daughters a number of years ago. I re-archived it, and I use this in a Fed briefing to explain where we were headed in 2009. Um, I think what we face is something that's going to be very messy. It's going to at least be a W, and we don't know what we don't know yet. But whatever we do and try to figure it out, I think we can make a difference by practicing social distancing. So I'm a car guy. I love the old 1960s vintage VW bus vans, the campers. And so you can see they're nice and evenly spaced apart, six feet apart. I think if we do anything is we think things through, we try to look at behavior. If we also could just practice social distancing, I think we can make a big difference in how this thing turns out. So I'll stop there and see if there's any questions, James. I'll stop wow. sharing so look at the questions. That, that's a lot of information. So <laughs> <laughs> let me ask my question, my questions, then we can go to the audience questions. Yeah. So I know you're saying we are on the W, but which part of the W are we in? Are we in the first V and then are we in the, the top of the second V or where are we? Yep. So May reopening states was that, you know, that coming down the first part of the W and the rise, um, you know, the coming back in the economy was that first part of the W in May and early June. And we're starting to slide. We're turning that middle part of the W. We're bending back down. 
and it's going to get a lot worse. I think the second part of the W could look like a W that my my kindergartner son drew. <laughs> it's not going to be an equal W. Um, and um, I fear it could be a U. Um, in fact, uh, Sam Zell recently gave an interview and, and he called for a U, not a W. Um, which is the 1970s. So I hope we don't go there. But I think, you know, we're seeing, we saw our lift in our recovery. And now we're going to see um, if Congress doesn't act, if they don't extend the stimulus, um, then I think it gets a lot worse. And then when we have to pull the stimulus back, when we pull rent forbearance out, when we pull, pull mortgage forbearance out, all of these supporting things out late this year, early next year, um, I think we're still in the slide. And until we can see us stand back up, we're not going to see that that thing come back. Got it. The second question is, I mean, I know you're saying things are going to get really bad. I do Let's say today, if I find a deal on apartment, do I go and buy it right now? And, and a deal is very relative, right? Or do I, do I, should I, should I just wait until things are settled down? So I'm very bullish on commercial real estate. And here's, and I'll give you my best example. So many of you are familiar with PREA, the Pension Real Estate Association. So they went to the sidelines in June. Two and a half trillion dollars of capital went to the sidelines because they had to do mark-to-market accounting on all of their assets and reallocate. So they just concluded that and they concluded, okay, we marked down our hotels, we marked down our retail. They've reallocated capital at like three to four times the level that it was before to multifamily and industrial. There's going to be so much capital chasing multifamily and industrial. And the reason is, where do you find yield today? You don't find it in a bond. You don't find it in 80% of the S&P 500 companies that have suspended dividends and forward earnings. You don't find it in banks when the Fed says on the bank stress test, they can't pay a dividend anymore. We don't know when we'll let them. So where do you find yield? And even if it's a four cap rate or a five cap rate, it looks damn attractive (laughs) compared to all the other options. And so I would say the housing piece and the logistics piece are fundamental to what we, what and how we come out of COVID and the prices are only going to go up. Construction costs are going to go up. The supply chain disruption is going to be worse in terms of construction. And with these low interest rates, the power of leverage that you have right now, we're, we're never going to see this again. So I think the power of leverage, the power of hunt for yield and the amount of capital that's going to chase multifamily and industrial is going to be mind boggling. So I would say, um, you know, think about it for about five to 10 seconds and then just get the damn thing done. <laughs> mm, got it, got it. So let me go to some of the questions that the audience have asked. So some of it's already been answered. What does the recovery look like? I think we already covered that. Uh, do you think airline bankruptcy will reset value, or eliminate uh, frequent flyer miles? It will. And Pete, that's what I'm saying. You might want to fly. <laughs> it's going to be one of those things. Every one of these contracts or benefit things are things that can be discharged in bankruptcy. In fact, who was it today? was talking about they were going to give it was one of the middle east airlines was offering to cover your health care costs huh. if you got covid while traveling um, using them as the airline carrier they're doing everything to basically get you to fly but i think airline miles are very much at risk we're going to probably lose all of those um, the airlines is a very very dire situation i worry more about the uh, the infrastructure i'll give you a metric i just read today so we worry about two and a half to two, 2.8 million passengers a day flying in the U.S. airports. You know how many people a day um, were flying through the Chinese airports before COVID? 68 million. 
Mm. We're worrying about less than 3 million and China has 68 million people flying pre-COVID. We're a rounding error on the world stage and, and China's recovered and they can move around the rest of the world because they don't have the cases. So I, I worry a lot about the airlines and the tentacles rental car companies, everything connected to the airport. I, I wrote a piece called, you know, the the hip bones connected to the leg bones, connected to the foot bone. If we start doing that with the airports and think of all the things that are connected, the conventions, the meeting business, the restaurants, the hotels, the rental car, um, the public transit, all of those things are connected. And we, we it's not just the airline industry we say, it's our entire um, you know, transportation industry. Got it. Got it. Do you see inflation coming back? So there's when two types. There's two types of inflation. I warn people about. That's why I talked about the Fed. There's a commodity and asset price inflation. I don't see that. Um, we're actually seeing that reverse and be deflationary. But the other one is currency inflation. So it's we're a fiat currency. All the currencies in the world are fiat. That means there's nothing backing them in value. We forget that fiat currencies can collapse. The last big one was Germany after World War One. The dollar to mark trade went from 12 to 1 in 1919 to 4.2 trillion to 1 by 1923. We are so massively devaluing the dollar that we could have massive currency inflation because the rest of the world doesn't believe in the in the value of the medium of our exchange. That's the risk that the Fed's playing with. They're playing with fire and matches around uh, gasoline. And so far, it hasn't exploded in their face. But I worry two, three years from now, we could wake up and we could be just like a Latin American debt crisis or Argentina or Brazil or any of these things we've, we've made fun of in the last 50 years. We, we are basically on path to be a fiat currency that collapses if we don't get it under control. The Fed really better start paying attention. Okay, let me look at other questions. Uh, do you think part they- of why gold, that's part of why gold's going up. I saw that was a gold question or cryptocurrencies. That a lot of that is driving it. People are losing faith in the dollar. And in fact, the new Fed governor that's been put up for nomination wants to put us back on the gold standard. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Mitt Romney came out with some commentary about it today. He's going to vote against her. But yeah, this latest appointment put up by uh, Trump wants to um, put us back on the gold standard. Oh, that must have uh, pushed the gold price up. Yep. I don't know. I think it went over, they're talking about it breaking what, two, uh, 2000 an ounce here. Do you think the uh, immunity card will be on blockchain, which is basically you know, part of the cryptocurrencies, I guess? Or you, you have no clue, I guess? Um, I used to study and do a lot on the cryptocurrencies. I think what's basically happening in the crypto and digital currency is, you know, it started out to basically allow illegal activities to occur. It became a lot more legitimate. Um, as the world struggles that they don't believe any of the central banks and their monetary policy, it's a way to allow um, foreign exchange and, and uh, commerce without having price manipulated by one central bank. So if we're continuing to print money and devaluing the dollar, how do we set the price if we're doing trade with, say, Vietnam or China? And so what a digital currency with algorithm lets you do is basically figure out that algorithm and what to, you know, to build into the asset holdings to mute what's happening, say, by our central bank or Europe's or China's. So I think we will, in my lifetime, see the dollar not be the reserve currency. I'm 58, so figure out how long I'm going to live. <laughs> uh, but I think in my lifetime, and I look at that as you know, a 10 to 12 year time horizon, that the dollar will no longer be the reserve currency and we will see the emergence of a stable digital currency that the world will use to do all international trade. 
Got it. Got it. So what kind of repositioning do you predict will occur with the retail and office? I think there's a few questions that are similar to this. Yeah. So office, um, so it'll be slow to happen just like after 2009. You have long-term leases in place that have to uh, run their course before they're up for renewal. We're going to see Equifax has already told us in their earnings, they're seeing what's called redundancy costs in major companies that occupy office space in which they're saying they're going to pay their leases off. Um, they'll run them, whatever the three, five years left. And they're releasing small blocks of suburban space for their remote work teammates to be able to have a place to go have a meeting or a, a group project. Um, but I think the long-term demand for office space is declining, especially in urban areas, big urban cities with density and public transportation. So New York, I think New York could be one of those big cities that actually ends up going bankrupt. We forget that happened in the 1980s. New York is in very, very dire situation. The, the exodus occurring in New York is mind boggling. I think you look at markets like Chicago, you look at San Francisco, you look at these big urban dense markets that are dependent on public transportation and a high density model. And I think we're seeing a watershed change and people are going to less dense. They're going to secondary tertiary markets, you know, places, you know, even if you look at a big city like a Dallas or an Atlanta, you, you, it's a car city. You don't have to um, take public transportation if you don't want to. I think that long-term demand fundamentals for office are changing. The office that is going to work and be in demand is going to be suburban and in smaller spaces. And then I think retail it's all adaptive reuse. What do we do? I think a lot of it will become warehouse, last mile fulfillment. Kroger's been partnering with drugstores to do their last mile fulfillment through drugstores. We're seeing branch bank close and become telemedicine. Um, we're seeing a lot of department stores and big box become last mile or warehouse or supply stock. Uh, Amazon's looking at all the JCPenney stuff. They bought a lot of the Toys R Us. A lot of retail is gonna become uh, basically warehouse or logistics and it's not going to be where you go to shop okay because everything is going online right so and uh, what about do you have any comment or outlook for mobile home park operators i love manufactured housing so one of the sister companies to monmouth is umh um, they're a manufacturing uh, a home community and the numbers are phenomenal if you think that uh, Prologis or Monmouth are wonderful. We, we've averaged 99% occupancy and rent collection all through COVID, March all the way through June. And the manufactured home, look at UMH as a proxy. The numbers are phenomenal. It's an affordable housing play. We only allow a zoning permits of maybe 100,000 units a year. We need five or 600,000 a year. Um, to meet the demand. Um, I'm incredibly bullish. You've got all kinds of barriers to entry, barriers to new product. Um, and in manufactured housing, including the lot, for about eighty dollars to $90,000 a year, you can buy your mobile home, your manufactured home, and your lot. Compare that to a cost of a new apartment. It's about 200, 200 plus to $250,000 a unit to build a traditional stick-built new apartment. And you can do manufactured housing at about one third that cost. It's an it is one of the affordable housing solutions. And these things aren't all places where tornadoes land in Alabama and Mississippi. They're not all crime ridden. They're not all but ugly. Um, there's a one to five star rating. If you go to Florida and Arizona, you can see these four and five star rated manufactured home communities where they have nice landscape walls and sidewalks and front porches. And um, you would not know their manufactured home community. I'm incredibly bullish on manufactured housing. 
What about on assisted living or retirement homes and self-storage? Senior housing run like hell. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. Uh, we've seen vacancy rise over 20% in the last 60 to 90 days. Uh, grandma and grandpa are never going to be stranded in a senior housing place again or where they put a bunch of people with COVID in there to, to you know, give everybody else the disease. Um, we're seeing people pull out of assisted living and senior housing and move back home with families or into more independent senior housing apartment communities, but they don't want age restricted. So we're seeing um, all the projects I've seen in Metro Atlanta drop age restricted in their marketing, but it's gonna be very ugly. We over leveraged in most senior housing. Most of them wanted to become full service. So from independent to assisted to skilled care, and they're finding that COVID is unwinding all of that. I would run like hell if you've got an asset. But what about you are building a senior housing for the next three years and is that a safe thing or is it still going to be, you know, not good? I hope you have a lot of equity. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. A lot of equity because uh, it's going to be a challenge. Lease-up's going to be hard. Operating costs are going to be hard. You know, just the total mismanagement by local leaders. Look what happened in New York with, you know, this, the, the nursing homes and senior housing. Um, my wife has family in one in, um, with, they're on the independent side of a big, large senior housing in um, Virginia, outside D.C. And they had something like 16 cases alone last week. And her parents and all, they, they, they went out. They just said, just get me the hell out of here. Uh, you can't come visit me. I can't see my grandkids. I can't go anywhere. Um, there's like, you're never doing this to me again. So unless, you know, you've got Alzheimer's or you need skilled care, uh, this, the independent and the assisted is going to be greatly challenged. What is booming is the home health care side, whether it's like a Bright Star or one of those entities that are doing the in-home health care. I have two neighbors alone where they pulled their elderly parents out of one out of assisted living and one out of senior housing and they brought them back home and uh, are doing uh, full-time uh, home health care got it got it so there's a lot of question about the fed what do you think the fed should do to stabilize the economy <laughs> they, they got to remember they had two mandates maximum you know maximum employment and price stability and they've taken on all of congress's mandates when congress couldn't pass cares bill they took on the stimulus they're intervening in the market they're picking the winners and losers when they're when they're deciding that they're going to invest in which cities and which ones they're not going to financially support they'll buy new york metro transit authority bonds but they won't buy any in texas uh or the southeast when they um they're making the winner and loser decisions and the fed needs some governors put around it right now like in bowling the governor you put up in the bowling alleys. Um, I fear the Fed is way beyond its mandate. It needs to get back into Colorado and skiing. They're way out in front of their skis and they're going to take a tumble. Um, I really worry that, you know, whatever happens after November elections, the Fed needs to be put back into its two mandates and quit doing all that it's doing. It is determining who gets support, who gets pricing, and the winners and losers in our economy. And it scares the bejesus out of me in the ballooning of their balance sheet. Reflect back to 2018. The Fed was finally going to try to stabilize monetary policy and interest rates and everything after the financial crisis. So they went for four rate hikes and they did the fourth one in December. And how did the market react getting anywhere close to 3% interest rates? They had a tantrum and they shut the economy down. And we had, you know, one of the biggest declines in the stock market until um, the, the most recent one here. And, the, you know, trying for the Fed trying to pull back from 10 or 
from seven or 10 or 20 trillion in intervention in 0% interest rates is gonna be a whole lot harder than what they went through in 2018. We need some boundaries and governors put on the Fed. Um, I think it's fine to keep interest rates low and to be accommodative, but them determining the intervention and what they're putting on their balance sheet scares the hell out of me. That's the job for Congress. Congress should be doing the fiscal, not the Fed. Got it, got it. So one of the question is, which currency do you think will be the next reserve currency? <laughs> okay. I don't know. Uh, something from outer space, the space station. <laughs> Okay. It's going to be a digital. I think we're, you know, you look at the ones that are more legitimate. I mean, Europe has got its own that they've been working on. The Fed, believe it or not, with the top 10 banks has been working on uh, a legitimate uh, digital currency. So I think one of the ones that's got transparency and legitimacy is going to emerge. China is ahead of us on the development of this and we'll have a lot to say about it. They're, you know, they're, they're many, many more hundred millions bigger than us. <laughs> mm, got it. Got it. And uh, do you see negative interest rate, tiny treasury coming soon? I hope not for us. If we do move to New Zealand, <laughs> we've, lost, we've lost the battle. If we go negative, the uh, Chairman Powell and the Fed presidents that I really respect, like Jim Bullard in St. Louis, Esther George in Kansas City, uh, the Dallas Fed, they've been really adamant that we are not going to go to negative interest rates. There is a bright, uh, you know, a bright line that we're not going to cross. I, I hope they stick with it. If we go to negative, like, like Europe, it didn't do any good in Japan. It's done no good in Europe. And it's just been the kiss of death. I think we're in trouble. Got it. Got it. So let me answer, ask one more question. Uh, what about single family homes prices? Because it's very correlated, not correlated. There's some impact to multifamily. And do you see single family home crashing in even uh, in the coastal cities? I do. I worry California, New York, Chicago, these high costs are going into 2020. Look at the states that were already in fiscal trouble. Look at that chart where I showed you who didn't have enough savings for unemployment insurance. The worst go to the tax foundation. They've got them all mapped out. And you look at those states that are heavily dependent on property taxes. So you look at the salt problems where everybody was leaving, you know, the state and local taxes, you know, the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, you look at California and where they were going. They were going to Texas. They're going to Florida. They were going to the Southeast. And that migration pattern isn't going to change. And so now you can you can get away from high taxes. You can get away from bad fiscal management of the state or the city. You can get less dense. You can get a higher quality of living. Um, I think it's a it's a real dire situation. I think for for California, New York, and New Jersey in particular. What do you think about the medical office private clinics? So we are going to completely reinvent medical. Um, medical office, telemedicine. Um, we're already seeing things like I've got a couple here in the Southeast, these uh, testing companies that have leased or bought closed branch banks and are doing telemedicine and testing. So they use the drive-through and you they can shoot the tube out to you with the test kit and you swab your nose and you seal it and you send it back in. They're using the vault in the bank to actually set up the lab to do the testing and you can come back through and get your results or get it online. So I think we're gonna see stuff move away from the hospital campus into smaller, less dense spaces. So my, my endocrinologist is in a, my diabetic doctor is in a, a big medical office practice. It's seven stories. They occupy half the building. They can't see anybody. They can't let enough of us in because we're all high risk. So they're trying to figure out how can we do this remote or in smaller pockets. So um, everything is going to become closer to the neighborhood, smaller, more remote. And I think that's an opportunity for retail. So a lot of closed restaurants, a lot of closed drugstores, branch banks, 
we're going to see medicine delivered in smaller units, uh, smaller physical spaces in, in more of the neighborhoods and less near hospital campuses, and that the campuses will be reserved more for the surgical or the outpatient. And even when you look at these outpatient surgery centers, um, they're relatively small, and they're, 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 they tend to be close to a hospital campus in case something goes wrong. But I think it's a lot smaller. The other thing is the challenges you have with medical office is it needs to be independent because you need to be able to isolate your medical waste from another use that may be in the same building. And you also need to have better security for um, pharmacy and all. I saw recently a closed CVS drugstore become doctor and lab testing clinic. All the walls were concrete except for the front. And so they had very, very secure. It was very mobile. It was very easy to get to. It was very easy for people to do their testing. So I think it's going to become smaller. Retail is going to be uh, a good opportunity for telemedicine. Got it. Okay, final question, which is the most sensitive question. November elections. So there's two scenarios that might happen, right? How do you think the commercial real estate is going to be impacted with scenario one, let's say the Republican Party continues, and scenario number two, the Democratic Party new wins the election? Two scenarios. So I'll try to do this as delicately as I can. So yeah, I know. It's a bit sensitive. Yeah, so and objectively. So think of what Trump did when he first got elected. He passed the 2017 Tax Act. And what was the one industry that got treated the most graciously? commercial real estate, right? We got every freaking benefit you could get uh, over any other industry. And uh, the perception in, on the other side is that maybe we unwind a lot of that, that um, the perception is that people that own commercial real estate or a lot affluent people that should pay more taxes, you don't need all these support benefits. So um, I think there'd be a lot of unwinding of the Trump 2017 Tax Act, and that would not be good for commercial real estate. I'm not saying whether they should or shouldn't do it. I'm just saying objectively, I think you look at what happened with the 2017 Tax Act and you know the SALT implications and all that stuff, and you know, think about it, the Democrats win in the big salt tax states like New York and you know, New Jersey and California. They're going to unwind all of those penalties. So I think it um, would be very disruptive to commercial. Let's put it that way. I think it would be most disruptive if Trump loses. I think that I think it gets very serious if any one party uh, has complete control. So if the Democrats also gain control of the Senate, retain the House, and win the White House, I think we could see some really uh, disruptive behavior in the marketplace in terms of stock market, real estate asset prices. I just don't think the market is prepared for that yet, but it is a looks like an increasing possibility. You look at the number of states that are in play in the Senate races from Montana, even down to you guys in Texas, Georgia, we got two, we're an unusual, we have both our Senate seats up because one of our senators, Johnny Isaacson, retired because of health problems. So we've got two Senate seats that both could fall and turn Democrat from Republican. I'll use the term very disruptive. Got it, got it. All right, I think we are done. Give me one last thing. So here's what I forecast early in the year. Mm -hmm. So remember, nobody forecast Brexit, and they never thought it would actually happen and get all the way through, and they didn't understand the the motivations behind it. It had a lot to do with immigration and culture, and it wasn't just that the British liked the pound and didn't like the euro. It was much more complex than that, and it happened. And I think that the November elections – we could see it initiate our own form of Brexit. And I already have a term for it. It's called flexit. 
Florida and Texas just plain exit. You have all the assets, all the wealth, the ports, the military bases. You you have so much to run your own country and would be one of the 10 or 15 largest GDPs in the country. Texas has a unique way in which it became a state that it can exit and it can annex other states and exit. People, you know, I, I say it somewhat jokingly, but um, Brexit should be something we should be keeping top of mind because this country is so divided that um, we, we could see that divide go to a point of what happened with Europe and Brexit. And I think, you know, you look at Florida and Texas in particular as microcosms of, um, of what could happen. So remember where you heard flex it first, if it all goes. <laughs> interesting, interesting. That's, right, my humor, that's my humor for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll remember that. So thank you very much, Casey. Thank you, James. Thank you. Bye-bye. We are ending the webinar. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.